So our final covenant, at least in terms of the endowment, we're going to, we're, unfortunately, we won't go into the ceiling room, which is why we spent a little bit of time last week talking about marriage covenant in addition to laws of chastity. So we've been looking at, you know, going from telestial to terrestrial is that outer change. But the same covenants we make in the temple, we face before we go to the temple. When did I covenant to obey the law of obedience? Certainly my temple version wasn't the first time I did that, right? Baptism was the first version of the law of obedience. We obeyed, we command, we are commanded to obey the law of sacrifice. If baptism is the death and burial of the natural man, you can already see sacrifice coming into play. We are certainly under the law of the gospel. And then we talked about two different aspects of the law of the gospel, chastity, and today, consecration. So what form did the law of consecration take before I got to the temple? In the chapel version of consecration, what form does consecration take in chapel ordinances? EJ? Okay, holding a calling. Holding a calling. Going to church. Okay, what else? Tithing. Can you go to the temple if you don't pay your tithing? So there's already an implied law of sacrifice before you even get to the temple, right? Or sorry, consecration. If I don't pay my tithing, I can't even go to the temple to make temple covenants. So we saw a version of consecration before we even went to the temple. But if the temple is to help me go from terrestrial to celestial, and that we're gonna remake all of these, we've been talking in this class about what's the difference between chapel obedience and temple obedience. This one is a commitment to obey. It's kind of like a discipline to obey. And this one is a disposition to obey. I'm changing who I am and how I look at the law. So many prophecies of our day said, I will have a people who has the law written in their heart. Jesus told us through, the Jehovah told us through Jeremiah, someday I will, I will create a new covenant and my people won't need tablets of stone because my people will have the law written in their heart. And that's what we covenant. Sacrifice, we talked about telestial versus terrestrial sacrifice. We've talked about the law of the gospel. Last time, we talked about the difference between the law of chastity before the temple and the law of chastity in the temple. So let's see if we can take this to a new level. Why, why those two? Of all the gospel covenants, of all the parts of the law of the gospel, why does he pull those two out and emphasize those? Do we all agree that those are contained in the law of the gospel? And when I covenant to obey the law of the gospel, I'm really covenanting to make both of those. So why does he pull them out and give them special emphasis? I think Anyone who watches what goes on in this planet can see why the law of chastity gets special emphasis, right? It is a major challenge in the, in the world in which we live. And so also is consecration.
Um, why is it that we don't learn the great lesson of many are called but few are chosen? Because their hearts are set so much upon the things of the world. Consecration becomes a major challenge. So before we jump into it, let me just set the stage. How much of Heavenly Father's possessions is He willing to give us? Is there anything He's going to hold back? Is there any possession or ability that He has that He's not willing to freely give every one of us who qualifies for it? Wouldn't it then be hypocritical for me to say, I want everything that you have, Heavenly Father, but you can't have everything that I have. So it seems to me that we get to practice Godhood. Chastity and consecration are practicing Godhood. Will you use the sacred powers of procreation the way he designated? Will you practice Godhood in appropriately creating life? And then, what will you do with your possessions? Because I know what God does with his. Do you see the, why these kind of are held out as separate covenants? Let's turn to the law. Let me show you the Lord give us the law of consecration in the history of the church. And then we're going to see if we can ask the question, what then is the temple version of paying your tithing so I can go to the temple? Turn with me to section 37 of the Doctrine and Covenants. We're going to start in 37. The church was born in which state? I hate to admit it because we're such a western side of the United States church now, but where was the church born? New York. We are a New York-based church. We were born in New York. And what got us out of New York was apostasy. Well, was the threat of, I don't want to say apostates because it's not the people who had left the church. It was the threat of people outside. In fact... There's a fascinating little verse. Go to section 38. One of the reasons we left New York. Sorry, let me get there. Turn to section 38. Someday, I can't wait. Verse 13. I can't wait to know, well... It's not like it's an exciting thing. It's a devastating thing, but someday we'll find out. Look at 3813. Why did we leave New York? It was dangerous. Joseph's life was in danger. I now show you a mystery, a thing which is had in secret chambers to bring to pass even your destruction. And you know it not. So where did he send us? Go back to chapter th or section 37, verse 1. Where does he send us? Ohio. Okay, we're going to Ohio. We're leaving New York. We're going to go to Ohio. And I command you, verse 3, to assemble at the Ohio. In 38, section 38, he tells us why. Look at verse 32. 
Two specific things are going to come in Ohio. What are they? Okay, I'm going to send you, go to the Ohio, and there I will give unto you my law, and you will be endowed with, okay, so temple and law. So where is the law? Do you know that Joseph Smith was given a law? Just like Moses, when he was sent to lead the children of Israel, went up to Sinai and came down with two tablets. Joseph Smith was given a law. We have a modern day law. And we don't talk about it very much, do we? Most people don't even know where it is. Turn to section 42. It'll point you to 42, but go to the section heading of 42. What does Joseph Smith designate 42 to be? Embracing the law of the church. Here is our law. Now, there are a whole bunch of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Now, notice he kind of picks up in the old law. Look at verse 18. He starts with kind of a common one. Thou shalt not kill. Verse 20, thou shalt not steal. Verse 31, 21, sorry. Thou shalt not. That's a whole lot better than bear false witness. Let's use our modern language. Don't lie. Don't lie. Now, what would come next? Steal, kill, bear fault witness, chastity, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. But notice he turns it positive instead of negative. And I love that in verse 22. Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart and cleave unto her and unto none else. Now, let's pick it up. Some other modern day laws. This is a subject for another day. But some modern day laws, I love verse 27. As part of the Latter-day Saint law, we are commanded to, thou shalt not speak evil of thy neighbor, nor do him any harm. We'll skip the one we were going to come back to, but I love verse 40. Here's another one. Part of the modern day law, which is not on the Ten Commandments, it's not on the tablets of stone, but is very much a higher law. Thou shalt not be proud in thy heart. That's the law. Verse 42 will come to. I love verse 45. Here's kind of a fun one. Thou shalt live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. Kind of cool. A modern day law. What I want to focus on is verse 30. Section 42, verse 30. Part of our law is, and I would say it's two-parter here. Part number one is, remember the poor. Remember them. And then number two, consecrate. 
remember them, and consecrate. Now, this is where I wish we had a little bit more time in this class, and so allow me just a few minutes to do the first one, and then we'll get into the law of consecration. Thou wilt remember the poor. The one thing I, I feel bad that we haven't had a chance to talk about are more symbolism, more symbols of the temple. This was about the covenants of the temple, and I would love to have gotten into the symbols of the temple. And I think all of you are familiar with the symbol of the compass. Now, when I say the compass, when I say compass, if you were to think of an image that comes to mind, describe the image that comes to mind when I say the symbol of the compass. My guess is it points north and south and east and west, right? The compass road, but also like that is not the shape that you wear. There's another compass. We need to get the right word. What's a compass? The other one. It's a drawing tool. The square and the compass are used for doing what? Drafting. Which means we are what? We are being built. We are in building mode. And that we wear the symbol of the compass and we wear the symbol of the square. So not north, south, east, west compass, but draw a circle compass. If you're going to draft and build, you need a compass, right? Now tell me how you draw a circle. Isn't it interesting that we don't wear the symbol of the circle? And yet, how many circles are there in the temple? Do we form a circle in the temple? We do. How many times do you go into the... I love the, Jordan, the Okra Mountain Temple has little interlocking circles all over. And yet we don't wear the symbol of the circle. Why is that not one of our symbols? Because we wear the symbol of the compass, which draws the circles. Tell me how I draw a circle with that. I put this end in a center, and then I do what? Circumscribe. All truth can be circumscribed into one great whole. I form a center, and then I draw a circle around it. So every time we draw a circle in the temple, the, the compass is pointing to a center. I want you to think of the moment we draw, we form a circle in the temple. What's at the center? Okay, so an altar, which clearly represents a lot of things, but the main thing the altar represents is who was placed on that altar. This is the atonement. So the atonement is it the center? Now keep going. What goes in the center when we form a circle? Yeah. 
broken people. The purpose of that circle is to put broken people where? On Jesus. Now that's a subject for, and that's what we could spend hours talking about. My covenant is to put broken people on Jesus. Now, I love what the Lord does. What does he hold up throughout the endowment as if to say, you want to understand what you're doing? Do you want to understand better what you're doing? Go here. What does he hold up repeatedly? The scriptures. So can you think of, there's lots of them, but can you think of a moment where a circle and broken people and Jesus? Let me show you one of my favorites. And this is haunting to me. Go to Luke chapter 19. There's this haunting scene that occurs in Luke chapter 19. Jesus is in Jericho, which symbolically, where's Jericho? Anyone know where Jericho is? Anyone know where the Dead Sea is? What's the elevation of the Dead Sea? Well below sea level. If the land of Israel weren't there, the Mediterranean Sea would pour into it. It's well below. And Jericho is right there next to the Dead Sea. It's one of the lowest places on earth. Jesus is going to go down to Jericho. Now watch what happens. Luke chapter 19, there's a man named Zacchaeus. Now I know some people say Zacchaeus. They're wrong. The correct pronunciation is Zacchaeus. I don't know. Just that's how I say it. Zacchaeus has three problems. Tell me what they are. Verse 2, problem number 1. He's a chief publican. What's a publican? Tax collector. So he works for Rome. And what does he do for Rome? He collects taxes. Now, the way tax collectors got paid is Rome, ha I, owe the X, I have to pay X number of dollars to Rome. And if I can pull out more, then that's my pay. So I keep the excess of the taxes that I don't give to Rome. So he's a tax collector. And number two in verse two, he's rich. So what's the assumption? That he's cheated the Jews out of their money and given it to Rome and taken his own portion. See how he has two strikes against him? Now, the reality is that's not true. He tells Jesus, verse 8, tell me about this man. Luke 19. Half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him full force. So he's not that person. But the assumption is going to be he's gotten rich out of their taxes, right? So he's a tax collector. He's rich. And I don't know if this is strike three, but it kind of plays to our point. Verse three. Little. He's little. He's little of stature. Now, because he's little of stature, he could not see Jesus because of the press. Why can't little people see someone? You have to draw this. Where's Jesus? Where's Zacchaeus? Why can't he see Jesus? Because he's out here. 
He's outside the circle. He wasn't let in the circle. He's different. He's funny. He's odd. I don't care for him. So I keep him out. And so he climbs a tree. Now, you want to know the kind of Messiah we have? There are two very significant words that tell you about Jesus. Verse 5. Tell me the verbs. He is looking for him. And he, he saw him. Jesus is looking for the people we reject. The odd ones, the ones that don't fit. The ones that smell different and act different. They don't wear the right things. They're not in the club. He's looking for them and he sees them. Now listen to verse five. I just, this is haunting to me. Jesus came into the place and he looked up and he saw him and he said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must abide at thy house. Why the word must? That is one of the most haunting words in the New Testament for me. I must abide at your house. Why? I must because they didn't. That, that haunts me. I would love to think that if Jesus were here, he would say, hey, I'd like to attend your institute class. You're talking about the temple? I'd like to attend your institute class. Oh, wait, I can't. I need to go find Zacchaeus. Because you didn't. And that haunts me. Jesus is looking for the broken people. He sees them. And he says to the rest of us, I'd love to join you, but I can't. Because I got to go find him. The people you were sent to take care of, but you missed him. This whole story teaches me sermons about the covenant I'm making in the temple. That there are Zacchaeuses in my life. There are Zacchaeuses in every one of our wards. In our family, we all know who the Zacchaeus is in your family, right? In your ward, at your work, there are Zacchaeuses in every aspect of our life that we are keeping outside the circle and they can't see Jesus. And the covenant, the covenant I'm making is to see them, look for them, and see them. When my sweet wife was a senior in high school, her parents moved from a very small town in Cedar City to Salt Lake. She went from a two-way high school to a large Salt Lake high school. No one saw her. 
no one noticed. It just haunts me. I was miles away, and I didn't know. But not one person at that high school saw her and noticed her and let her into the circle. And I have spent my whole life making sure that no one else's wife, no one else's husband, will say that about the people around me. That's the commandment. Thou wilt remember the broken people. The Zacchaeuses. And get them inside the circle. And put them on Jesus. Let them see him. If that's not the essence of our religion. It's to get the broken people inside the circle. So, part number one. Remember. Alright, let's go back to Doctrine and Covenants. 42, part number two. Verse 30, thou wilt remember the poor. And in my scriptures, you know what I've written next to the word remember? Pulling from Zacchaeus, I've written what two words or what two phrases? Look for and see. Look for them. And see, I'm begging you as the husband of someone who no one saw to not let anyone stay outside the circle. Now, the next one is consecrate. Thou wilt remember and thou wilt consecrate. Now, what he's about to do in verses 31 through 33 is give the outward manifestation of the law of consecration. Now, that's a subject I wish we had another week. We could talk about the outward. The beauty of what the Lord has done is before he gave section 42 and said, here's the outward. Let me give you the inward. Now, if anything resonates with temple covenants, it's the inward and you can, you, 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 do you notice the anomaly? Do you outwardly live the fullness of the law of consecration? Does anyone in this room outwardly live the fullness of the law of consecration? Nope. Will we? Someday. Do we today? So what is it that you covenanted to do? When you went to the temple and you made the law, you covenanted the law of consecration, was he just simply saying someday? Someday. Well, what about all the people who died before that law ever get? Was that just a null and void commandment or a null and void covenant? Or is there something inside the inner law that must be in place before we ever live the outer law? So let's flip back for section and go back to section 38. As a preparation for the outer He's going to give the inner. All right, inner aspect of consecration number one. Let's start in verse 16. And then I would add verse 39. There's hints all over the scriptures about this. But the gist of this is, all that I am and all that I have, belongs to God. 
Everything I own belongs to God. Let's take this iPad, for example. It's my beloved iPad. I paid for it, and Apple gave it to me. Where did Apple get it from? Every one of the components in this iPad came from where? Someone dug them up or harvested them or mined them. From where? And whose were they when they pulled them from the earth? Have you ever done, you, you, when you buy a house, you, you, you've heard of a title search? Before you ever buy a house, you have to do a title search. You have to verify that the seller owns the property and has the, rightful, the right to sell it. So you do a title search. But no one has ever really done a proper title search, right? I bought my house from the Parkers. The Parkers bought their house from blah, 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 and from a farmer who was, whose field it was. If you go back far enough, what are you going to find? If you take my little piece of property and you go back far enough, what are you going to find? Someone just claimed it. Well, whose was it before that? I really had no right to buy my house because no one had the right to sell it because it belonged to God. Everything I am and everything I have is His. Now, the beautiful thing of that is, if I believe that, if I believe that everything that I have is His, and everything that I am is His, then in the end, what will I have and what will I be? Do you see that connection? If I claim that everything I have is mine, in the end, what will I have? Nothing. And so there's the attitude. Do you believe that everything that you are and everything that you have is His? Because what's gonna, there's no way I'm going to live the consecration if I have what attitude? This is mine. But the attitude of this is His, well, if Heavenly Father wants to use His iPad for His purposes, He certainly can. If Heavenly Father wants me to use my van to drive the Cub Scouts around, then He certainly can use His van to take the Scouts to Scout Camp. It's an attitude. But there's one, of the, there's one of the most difficult challenges with the law of consecration. And one of the reasons I don't know if the church could live it today. Because it requires the attitude that all that I have is His. All that I am is His. Now, let's do the others. And we'll just, you know, youth, anything you'd like to add. But all I am and have is His. And if I believe that, all that I do have and all that I am will be His. All right, number two. And here's a hard one. Let's go back to verses 24 through 27. Part of the covenant of consecration 
is to believe what? Eternal truth. When you raised your hand and made the covenant to live the law of consecration, what were you promising? I will esteem no man above another, including myself. I am no better than anyone else. I am no better. I'm not better than you. I'm not better than anyone else. How do we do that? How does he show that in the temple? What do we all wear? What do we all do? Have you ever been on an endowment session with an important person? We all wear the same clothes. I was in an endowment session with an apostle. And guess where he sat? No different. He just sat where he was supposed to sit. And I just thought, here's an apostle, and we're treating him like everyone else. And guess what he was wearing? The same thing everyone else was wearing. I am no better. Now, let me just show you the beast. Let me show you the challenge, the enemy. I love the Book of Mormon's version of pride. So turn with me briefly to Jacob chapter 2. A lot of places we could study pride, but I want to take to Jacob chapter 2. I think the Book of Mormon's definition of what the problem is, is the very best definition. Verse 13, I think we can boil pride down to three words. Now, where does it start? What is the sin? I'm proud to be an American. Does that mean I'm sinful? I'm proud of my children. Does that mean I'm sinful? Where's the sin begin? Well, I think there's one word in verse 13 that starts the problem. And I don't think the problem is the word abundantly. Pride isn't necessarily because you have lots of something. Did Jesus have lots of something? And yet was he proud? So what's the problem in verse 13? I would suggest the problem is the word more. What are you doing when you have more? You're comparing. That's the sin. If I say I'm proud to be an American, there's no sin there. But if I'm proud because my country has more than your country has, there's the sin. As soon as you have more. More money, more prestige, more likes. And here's an odd one for Latter-day Saints. The source of pride for many Latter-day Saints is what do they have more of? Righteousness. The problem is more, which means you're comparing. Now go to the end of verse 13. If you have obtained more, the next word is because you have more, you think you are better. Because I have more, I'm better. I'm better than you. 
And because I think I'm better, what will I do to you? Right before better is persecute. Because I have more, I think I'm better, and I'm going to persecute. And persecution comes in lots of forms. Maybe it's I drive a car that I know you can't purchase, and I'm going to make sure you notice me driving it. That's my way of persecuting you. Um, We persecute in lots of ways, but we're often jabbing them because I'm better than you are. And pride goes both directions. Sometimes pride takes the form of you have more, therefore I think you're better, and who do I persecute? It's still pride. That's no different. Pride is more, better, persecute. So what's the covenant? I will not esteem anyone above or below another. That was the covenant you made. I'm no better. You're no better. And I promise, Lord, I will treat people that way. I am no better. Now, is the church, this is going to be judgmental, but forgive me, is the church ready to live consecration? Based on just those attitudes? Do you see why, do you see what needs to happen between now and the millennium? We need a people who say, all that I have is His. And I'm no better than anyone else. Number three on our list. Back to um, Doctrine and Covenants section 42. Sorry, 38. 42 was the law. We're in the, the preparation. Back in verse 38. Chat section 38. Um, let me list this one and then we'll talk about it another day. Or this will be a subject for another day. Um, verse 17. There's an attitude here. Now, we live in a system. I love capitalism. I think capitalism is the best system on planet Earth. But capitalism has an inherent flaw in it. Capitalism says what drives prices up is when, when are prices high? When demand is high and supply is low. And so if I have a product and I want to be paid for it, I can take advantage of capitalism by convincing you that what? There's a shortage. So one of the cheats in capitalism is if I can convince you that there's not enough. And unfortunately, that kind of has a spiritual ramification. There's not enough seats in the arena for everyone who wants to go. Therefore, you better pay dearly for your seat in the arena, right? But when it comes to the things that we need for success, 
what's the doctrine here? What's the doctrine? There is enough. There's plenty. Do you remember what the Lord, remember the Lord tried to teach that lesson with the manna? After going so long without food, the first night, the first morning they woke up and there was manna to eat, what did they do? What was their reaction? I'm going to gather as much as I need and I'm going to store it. And the next day it went bad. Now, was manna capable of lasting more than a day? Because of the Sabbath. When they gathered on the Sabbath, did it go bad? No. So manna was capable. So why did he make it go bad? He was trying to say, and I think one of the things he was saying is, trust, there'll, there'll be manna tomorrow. Why was their tendency to go gather a lot? I don't think there's going to be enough tomorrow. What is driving poverty on this planet? Is it that this planet can't produce enough food for all of its inhabitants? Do you know how many people this planet could feed? U.S. News and World Report ran a report back in the, I think this was in the 80s. When did they run this? Ninety-five, U.S. News and World Report estimated that this planet is capable. Anyone want to guess? This planet is capable of feeding. Any guesses? Eighty billion. We could feed eighty billion. Was their estimate? U.S. News and World Report, entitled 10 Billion for Dinner, Please, states that the earth is capable of producing food for a population of at least 80 billion. How many do we have? Seven. And how many starving people are, are among the seven billion? The majority. Why? Tell me why. It's not because this planet can't produce enough food, so why? There's a lot of people who think what? I need to grab on and hold. And if I'm ever going to live consecration, what attitude do I have to have? There is enough. Take what you need and let the others have the rest. But there is such a spirit of hoarding. No one should go hungry tonight, should they? But why will people, why will children go hungry tonight? Because someone has far more than they need. And it causes people to go without. So the attitude is, there is enough. Number three, there is enough. Take what you need. And let everyone else have the rest. In the Old Testament, do you remember how they had to harvest? What, what did Heavenly Father tell them to do when they harvested? He imposed a rule when they harvest. Anyone know what the rule was? <clears throat> it was a box and a circle. Interesting symbol, right? You draw a circle inside that box. What was mine? Everything in that circle. And who got the corners? The poor people. 
Where did Ruth glean in Boaz's fields? In the corners. I left the corners for the poor. No one should have gone hungry because there were plenty of fields I could go take from the corners. That was imposed upon Israel. But we don't have such impositions today, do we? Take this, leave that. Everyone will have enough. Number four is a hard one. Back in section 38, and he said it as a separate commandment back in 42. He will give this as a separate commandment. But verse 40, I give unto you a commandment that every man, both elder, priest, teach, and also member, go with his might with the labor of their hands. In section 42, he'll say it bluntly, thou shalt not be idle. That doesn't necessarily mean don't be lazy. What it means is you take care of you. Don't put the responsibility of you onto someone else. No, that's not consecration. Consecration is, I will take care. You don't need to worry about me. I will take care of me and my own. Being idle means I am shifting the burden of my care to someone else. Um, probably the defining statement comes from President Spencer W. Kimball. We all, everyone quotes, all the prophets nowadays quote this statement from President Kimball. He said, The responsibility for each person's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, or economic well-being rests first upon himself. Second upon, any guesses? his family, and third upon the church. Now, if there is a fourth, and there are some appropriate times, what would the fourth be? The government. But no one should have the government take care of them who can take care of themselves. So I should go to the government when? Last. If I... Who's, who's responsible for my tuition? Who should pay my tuition? I should pay my tuition. Now, that's really hard sometimes, right? And the Lord says, look, getting an education is important, so I can't pay for my tuition. It would cost me years if I paid for my tuition. So who should then step up and take care of my tuition? My family. Well, my family can't. My family can't cover my tuition. My parents can't cover my tuition. And the church doesn't get into tuition, not in the United States. So now where do I go? Okay, but it would be a violation of the law of consecration to have the government pay for it if, if I could pay for myself or if I don't pay it back. That's really interesting because do you see scholarships from the government Yes. Now, if I earn a scholarship, anyway, sorry. my parents didn't have to pay for my education because I took care of it, not in earning a job, but in earning a scholarship that covered it. But there's the attitude. 
I should never shift to my parents something that I can take care of. So let me finish this quotation. No true Latter-day Saint, while physically or emotionally able, will voluntarily shift the burden of his own or his family's well-being to someone else. So long as he can, under the inspiration of the Lord and with his own labors, he will supply himself and his family with the spiritual and temporal necessities of life. Now, I have an nine-year-old who cannot provide his own food. Heck, I have an 18-year-old who can't provide his own food. So, who does? Mom and dad. And I'm happy to shoulder that burden. And if there ever comes a point where I can't, then where would I go? I would go to the church and say, I can't provide enough for my own. And lastly, I would go to the government. But I should never go to anyone else as long as I can take care of my own. That's a hard lesson for my children. My children and I, as they, I have five married kids, and it's always been a little awkward in that transition. Because my parents want to keep being a child, but they want to be an adult. Um, not too long ago, my married son, who's still under my insurance, right? He's under my insurance. He had to have a root canal. He's an adult, married, but he had to have a root canal under my insurance. So the insurance didn't cover all of it. And the bill came, $200. It was just, my son was like, what? Can you see what my son was kind of hoping? Dad, this is, your, this is what your insurance didn't come for, therefore... Could you pay for it, Dad? And I'm like, don't shift the burden to me if you can take care of yourself. And I know you can. That's a hard lesson. But consecration says, I will take care of me. If I can't, I'll ask for help. But as long as I am able, I will take care of me. So take care of you. Own the responsibility for your well-being. Tell me what come follow me is trying to teach us. What's the church saying with come follow me? The whole shift to come follow me was the church's way of saying what? You have put too much of your spiritual well-being on us. It is not ours. You are responsible for you. Therefore, we will be, what is the church now? We are home-based, church-supported. You take care of you. So part of that covenant, especially at your age, is to find that transition between, you know what, I'm really not able to take care of myself in this area. I still need your help. Versus, thank you, mom and dad. Thank you. But I will take care of me. We've had some interesting discussions in my family about cell phone plans because I still have almost every one of my children on my cell phone plan. It's like, Dad, it's so much more expensive to be on my own. I'll just pay for what I use. And it's like, I love that, and I have no problem with that. But somewhere along the line, you got to say what? I 
will take care of me. And so we have the conversation, my children and I, and some of them are more capable of that than others. But in the ultimate sense, do you see how that's going to be so critical to living the outward law of consecration? I'll take care of me. I don't need the church to take care of me. I'll take care of me. If we all took care of ourselves, what kind of world would we be living in? So, four inner aspects of the law of consecration. All that I have is His. All that I am is His. Number two, I'm no better. I wear white just like everyone else. I do the same thing to get through that veil that everyone else does. I am no better. But to think I'm better, because I have more, how much pride can I take into the celestial room of the temple? Zero. So you either stay in the terrestrial room with your pride, or you let go. I am no better than anyone else. There is enough. I will take what I need, and I won't take any more. And number four, I will take care of me. I find it fascinating that section 38 came before section 42. Do this so that you can live that. And I think the biggest obstacle, I think the reason this church is not living the fullness of the law of consecration is we're not ready. Our attitudes are not ready. So my invitation as we close this class is that you be the one, that we be the ones, that somewhere there's gonna be a generation that says, we'll do it. We will have the attitudes so that we can live the outer law of consecration. No one should go hungry tonight. No child should go to bed hungry tonight. But there are billions who will. Consecration is better than capitalism, hands down. But we'll never get to consecration until we have the attitudes correct. When I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.